everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Today, Danietta Najoli joins us. Danietta is, oh my gosh, she's a busy girl. She calls herself a uh, type A, a recovery type A personality is how she describes herself. She is a, a senior community builder at Starfire, a nonprofit in Cincinnati. She is a wife. She's a mom. She's an author. She works uh, leading conversations around racial reconciliation in Cincinnati. She is a co-founder of the Black American Tree Project. And we're going to talk about all those things. So uh, get ready, folks. Uh, Danietta has quite the story. You are going to be inspired by today's conversation. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to Community Possibilities. I want you to give a warm welcome to my guest, Danietta Najoli. Welcome, Danietta. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me today. Well, we've been having a great conversation. We we had a little bit of tech issues because, you know, it's the world we're living in, but here we are. We 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 uh, we pursued and and we're ready and settled and we've been having a great conversation about uh, family tree, family history, uh, religion, all sorts of fun things before we even pressed record. <laughs> so um, we came to know each other through a colleague, uh, and we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about um, your work and your project, and I just knew that. Um, I don't know. I just felt like an instant connection. Like I just met a new best friend and I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm really glad to be on this podcast with you, Anne. And I've uh, had a chance to listen to a, a few of your episodes and I'm just so impressed with um, the, the level of conversations that you have with people and just how people are people. And you, you get that sense when you listen to the podcast uh, that you have. So, yeah, I'm glad that uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, colleagues and friends, you know, she um, referred, referred me. So I'm just really glad to be here. Well, great. Well, let's just um, start by having you introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to be who you are. Okay. Well, wow. You know, that's a really nice question. How do, how did I come to be who I am? That That's so like full. Um, <laughs> welcome. Yes, yes. Well, it's definitely been a journey for sure. Um, I I have to say, if I'm talking about how I came to be, I have to always start at my origins, which um, it it does touch on early family uh, trauma. You know, uh, when I was really young, uh, I lost my father uh, probably at around four. And then, and I wasn't, I don't really have a whole lot of memory of him, but I lost my mother uh, uh, when I was about five months, Mm -hmm. uh, when I was about five, I should say five. And it was about a month before my sixth birthday. So having the memory uh, of the day that she passed, like it was yesterday, is Mm. is something that informs me even to this day, because um, she, she suffered from clinical depression. And so, um, you know, seeing and experiencing my family strengthen because they had to rally around me and my two older sisters uh, who are five and six years older than me uh, definitely shaped me into the person I am today. And having the unlikely pair of my grandfather, Harry Roscoe Downing Sr. and my uncle, David, um, David, 
Darrow T. Downey, David's my other uncle, <laughs> but those, they, they both raised me. And that speaks volumes <clears throat> about how I view men who raise children, for instance, and, and starting, even starting with my, how my husband raises uh, our kids. Mm-hmm. So I have a really strong sense of uh, community with my family and friends. Uh, and I want others to feel a sense of like social inclusion, mm-hmm. a sense of belongingness and community because of that. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's a major thread. Mm-hmm. Um, and having also having one person who was not my family member be there for me uh, at the same time that my mother had passed uh, since I was a young child, uh, that has been a real impactful for me. So uh, a woman named Diane McIntyre, who is my godmother, um, has been in my life since I was five years old. And she's uh, she's passionate with her life of being a choreographer, a modern uh, dance choreographer. And I had heard studies showing that you only need one person who says that they believe in you and mm-hmm. love you outside of your family, you know, who may or may not be saying the same thing uh, to help change the trajectory of your life. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's a big piece of how I came to who I to be who I am. And also just having a strong faith, um, a faith life, meaning I love God and, I, and knowing that there's someone, something bigger than me. Mm-hmm who has it all under control, even when it doesn't seem like it, or if I want to take the control too. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I just love developing my faith. And uh, for me, that means spending time in quiet reflection, prayer. And it also means being fully present and doing life with my family and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I feel you. And I got to tell you, my heart kind of breaks when you talk about how little you were when you lost your parents. I think about my little granddaughter, who's four, about to be five. I know, uh, and that's the, I, you know, and that's the thing when you look at like how little, you know, like when I think about my children, when they were that little and I think, oh my goodness, that's how young I was. And like you just said, mm-hmm. when you look at a child and that's why I bring it up because people experience these kinds of things, you know, a lot, unfortunately, mm-hmm. far too often than not. And I'm just grateful that the right set of circumstances were in play mm-hmm. um, at that time, because um this, as the story went, <laughs> you know, there were some cousins, you know, my, my grandfather and my uncle probably weren't like rushing to raise three girls necessarily. Mm-hmm. They would probably rather have other female family members like aunts, uh, cousins. And so we were going to be raised by some, some of our cousins, but one day at my age, they had seen me outside and this is in Harlem in the seventies, mid seventies. Um, and it was about 10 o'clock at night. My uncle was just happened to go around that area, that neighborhood, and saw me just sitting out, just not doing anything at like 10 o'clock at night. So mm. when he told his father, my grandfather, you know, the, the saying goes, my grandfather said, go get those girls, go mm-hmm. get those girls. So that was the resolve that they had to say, mm-hmm. okay, I don't care how we're going to do it, but we're definitely not going to have it happen that way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful um, right. that, that they really took, took, uh, the helm. And mm-hmm. and even to this day, we have family calls. I mean, my, my grandfather's passed since a long time ago, mm-hmm. but, um, but my uncle and my two sisters and I, we, we make it a point to have phone conversations on zoom now, mm-hmm. at least, at least as regularly as we can ha- have it, which is about mm-hmm. once a month. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we've gone, we just recently, we started doing this in maybe 2007 when I had said, I don't want us to just meet for you know, for none of us are probably marrying at that, by that time, we already have been, you know, if we were going to be married, we were already married. Or, um, but we didn't want to get together just for like negative uh, occasions, like maybe right. a funeral. funeral. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then family reunions, that's once a year. So why don't we, or once every other year, so why not get together in, in other cases? So mm-hmm. I said, let's just have a family call. And we used just telephone because many, like my two uncles at the time, they weren't really high tech. So we just said, let's just use the phone. And then when Zoom came along, we, we used it. But, um, but it wasn't until maybe last year, since 2007, all the way up to maybe 2021, that we just started cracking the surface of going deeper around the family, the family, um, you know, the tragedy that, you know, my family experienced and how we processed it back then. We never, we didn't start talking about that until recently. And I knew that it, it took all those years for us to get to that space because we would just moderate the conversation with different topics. And then we all would have, you know, space to talk and um, have that time. But so I just know that just being available, just like they were, my, my uncle and my grandfather were for me, I, I feel like that's the way that, you know, I could be available on this side so we could process and heal together collectively. That's yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. So yeah. let's, let's talk about now you're in Cincinnati, correct? Yes. I yeah. Am. <laughs> and tell us about the work you do. So you're with Starfire, which I believe is a nonprofit that works with folks that have disabilities and you're all about inclusion. So that's definitely an area that I've worked in. So, and I love your title. I want your title, senior community builder. I want to be a community builder. <laughs> you can be, we are all in on some level or another community builders for sure. Now, and, I love that. that. Yeah. And that's just one of the things like I was um, checking you out on LinkedIn the other day and I'm like, okay, and what's this book? I mean, you've got, a mil- <laughs> so let's just start with the job job and then we'll talk about all your other jobs. Okay. Okay. No, um, you know, I'm a recovering type A personality too. So um, just so you know, so lots of projects going. Amen, sister. (laughs) But yeah, so I work at Starfire um, as a senior community builder. And what that means, well, first of all, Starfire is a place that believes that people should be connected based on similar interests and um, strengths and passions and hobbies, um, even uh, neighborhoods because most of the people that we work with and support um, may not be driving. So it's nice to have a a walkable space, you know, like to connect on a shared uh, neighborhood even. Um, And so that we can help them find their tribe, find their people. Um, So it's less important whether or not the person has a disability as it is, oh, they share art or they share, um, you know, historical reenactments or they share the love of theater um, or dogs, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, so as you can see, that would open it up. And what it does is it helps to change even culture around these ideas, because if you're focusing on someone's strengths and someone's um, interests, then you will have a better chance of connecting uh, people together based on that. You know, because last time I checked, I don't think any one of us wants to be um, labeled for something that society would would consider a negative label, right? Um, And so we, as an organization, we had actually made a transformation years ago where we, before that, we were actually having a traditional program, several traditional programs where people were congregated and segregated based on the label of disability. And it's pretty much the status quo in many ways that programming is done. You know, if you think about any organization that might be associated with groups of people uh, with disabilities being together, that's kind of how we operated. But we were even 
very innovative even at that by that definition and by those terms, because we had what was called a, um, it was like a post-secondary four-year program. That was one of our programs where you had a senior, um, you know, you had a freshman year where you would be exploring interests. And then you had your sophomore year where you can kind of hone in on something specific and then junior year to kind of develop a project. And then your final senior year, you would have a capstone project. Um, and all the while we, we would be bringing more people into the lives of others. Um, and so that project might include, you know, pr producing a play in the community. And, and we also believe, for instance, producing a play in the community, but we also believe that people should have valued social roles. And that was, that's really a big thing that we know that when people have valued social roles, they're more likely to experience the better things in life. If you think about our own lives, I mean, like we're, we're maybe a mom, you know, we might be a sister or daughter, uh, a, you know, a niece. Um, an employee, things like that, you know, so it, those kind of roles have uh, attached to them some good things in life. And that's what we mean by that. We don't necessarily mean rolling out the red carpet and now your celebrity status, you know, that's, that's like, whoa, that's extreme, you know, but we're just talking about, you know, in appreciating the good things in life that anyone would want to have. Being named and known is kind of our theme right now, which we all would like that and to be able to belong. So, that's what we are doing. I love that. Be named and known. That's such a different model. I just finished an evaluation project for L'Arche in the, in the U.S. I don't know if you're familiar with L'Arche. I have heard of them. Yes. Um, yeah. Wow. And they're all about um, respecting and um, really loving folks with disabilities for their whole selves, their whole, their whole whatever they bring their whole spirituality and um, pairing able-bodied people with people with uh, disabilities and trying to integrate them into communities. So I really, I really love that. So what is invest in neighborhoods? What does that mean? And the, and the ideal community council, what is that all about? Yeah. So invest in neighborhoods is um, it's an organization that's local to Cincinnati. Um, it's kind of a governing body that uh, that supports um, local community councils. If you think of um, so how Cincinnati is set up is we have different neighborhoods. We have about uh, 52 neighborhoods, <laughs> lots of neighborhoods. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of neighborhoods, definitely. And they're all so unique. And each of the neighborhoods have different community councils, right? So you have like, you know, citizens, ordinary citizens that want to, you know, see their neighborhood look better and be safer and, you know, attract more um, residents even, mm -hmm. you know? So then they have these community councils and so people can become like different leaders and officers, whether they're president, vice president and so forth of the community councils. So with those <clears throat> councils, they may need some governance and they may need some guidance around what's the ideal way to operate a community council so that the people in the neighborhood feel empowered. Because you know how we were talking before the recording, but you know how a lot of times politics and, and just group dynamics can set in so mm -hmm. easily to where you have just a set number of people that kind of run the whole whatever's going to happen in that neighborhood, it can easily happen. So an ideal community council um, type approach would be to find out how do you set this up so that, you know, we have sound bylaws so that they have, um, you know, good operating systems so that they can be effective so people can people can want to join and be a part of it. And that's a big question because 
um, neighborhoods might look different depending on which neighborhood we're talking about and how do you bring a diverse community within the leadership so that other people find representation, you know, for instance, so that they will then want to come and join. So that's how we, I mean, that's how Invest in Neighborhoods operates when it comes to like governing um, their organization and helping other neighborhoods uh, be their best. And they have like funds that they work with the city on to where they can, um, neighborhoods could apply for beautification funds and all kinds of neighborhood improvement funds through Invest in Neighborhoods. And then they will um, provide those funding to them. Um, yeah. So I used to be on their board years ago, um, really as a, as a function of my role, uh, it was a desire to expand my role as a community connector or community builder. Cause I thought, okay, well, if I'm working on this side of things, maybe I can understand what each of the neighborhoods are about. And, and if I'm working with someone one-on-one -on -one in community building, I can, I can better help that person get connected because now I'm working on that side and, and as a community builder. But that ended up being a lot of extra, a lot of work, a lot of extra work. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I bet. So that's that's different than your work at Starfire. That's one of those other type A projects you were talking about. Yeah, yeah so it really there, is. So there are, are there just like a couple of nuggets that you could share about what makes an ideal community council? Uh, obviously, engagement with people who are affected with the pro with whatever the issue is or whatever the concern is, but are there specific tips that we could think about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for neighborhoods to function um, really well, I think if, <clears throat> if, if the councils are really mining the assets of the neighborhood, meaning people are treasures and jewels in each neighborhood, there are so many, there's a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of, um, you know, just, treasure that you can find just by knowing the neighbors that are in your community and how do you get that you know do you get that through hospitality by creating hospitable welcoming spaces through the councils so that people will want to come and and do life you know mm -hmm. uh, together I think that's a great way to um to draw people and you might have to do a variety of different things because not everyone is going to like the same exact thing, you know, and that just shows there, there can be some diversity in, in how you attract um, more citizens to become more engaged. So yeah, I think that's that's one of the things to understand that we there's so many assets. I know Dr. John McKnight talked about the educating community and he mm -hmm. does a lot of work where he founded the asset-based community development uh, model. Um, and, and it's all about if you took a five mile radius in your neighborhood, what are, what are the assets that are there? You know? Right. Yeah. And being able to, as a community council, being able to say, okay, these are the assets that we have, whether it's a library, whether it's a community rec center, whether there are people, I mean, there's even the human library idea that some, you know, countries are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think they're looking at bringing it locally here where you could check out a person and say, you you are valuable, you know, especially if they're an older person, mm -hmm. excuse me, if they're an older person where, you know, that eldership can be uh, mined and valued. So it's just, to me, just taking different approaches, being mm -hmm. able to be innovative and not afraid to do something different just because it's never been done before. <laughs> I'm going to really have to think about that. Who would I check out if I could check out a person library? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. I really love that. And I love the idea about, um, 
you know, at being asset focused, you know, as a community psychologist, that's really important to me. What, what do we do when we write grants? The first thing we have to do is talk about how terrible the community is or how terrible the, the neighborhood or the social problem. Yeah. Um, we're not often asked what's all the wonderful things about your community or your neighborhood and how can we help you make it better? And, you know, that speaks to the um, sort of the institutional framework that, you know, sometimes can stand to mm -hmm. adjust because, mm -hmm. because that's, because that's the framework by which we've all been like, that's our muscle memory of how mm -hmm. we've all been trained. Like what's the deficit? What are the outcomes? You know, when you're doing programming, it's the whole, it, it's all based on that. Um, and I know like what the work that I, that I do at Starfire, it's really, it's really interesting that we, we, we flip that around. We, we don't, we, we know that we have to satisfy all of the requirements of, of like a program or mm -hmm. of a service, but we also know that that is not our full DNA. And we, we actually work at ways to kind of hack that system in a good way to bring about um, cultural shifts, you know, so that people are connected based on, you know, what's truly important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to, um, move on and talk a little bit about the racial reconciliation work you've been doing. Cause you've been doing this for a while yeah. before 2020, before, yeah. before, <laughs> before everybody woke up oh. and drank the Kool-Aid. Um, so, so talk yeah. about uh, that work. And I, I really want you to kind of dig into what are some of the rewards of that work, but also some of the challenges. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, that I like how you put that because it's a two-edged sword in many ways, <laughs> the rewards and the challenges. Um, yeah, I started working in racial reconciliation. Um, wow, it's been probably now about eight to 10 years. Um, I worked uh, in my church. Um, they had a, um, a program called uh, Undivided. And um, this is a church that's a pretty large church. It's one of the largest churches in the country. And the, the, one of the campus pastors was um, experiencing a, a point in, their, in his life where he said, you know what, after this all church journey that he had gone through, he was compelled to do something around racial reconciliation. He's, mind you, he is the uh, only, he was the only African-American campus pastor at the time. Uh, there were several campuses. And so um, he knew he was taking a big leap and, but everyone supported him, which was a beautiful thing. And so I was one of the first people to go through the, rec the undivided racial reconciliation training, which would allow me to um, be a participant. First of all, I went through as a, I should back up. I went through as a participant first, mm -hmm. you know, and it was a intentionally racially diverse group of about six to eight people in the group. And then they also had a co-facilitation model where you had a, a black co-facilitator and, and then also a Caucasian facilitator. Um, and so the questions were really, you know, it really stretched us and made us, you know, really kind of, you know, move out of our spaces. And the nice thing about that whole six-week conversation, because it was a six-week conversation you met every week, um, is that you could decide to do really whatever you wanted after that was done. You could have said, okay, well, yep, it's done. Did that, check that off my list. Or you mm -hmm. could have said, I'm gonna be compelled to do something that feels right for me. 
there was also a list of things that you could have done too, that as far as a, um, you know, list of options, maybe through mm-hmm. the church, maybe work with kids or work in the prison ministry, just things related to that. Mm-hmm. So um, what I, I didn't do any of those things, you know, I just, I just wanted to lean back into more learning. So I went back through the uh, undivided, but this time as a facilitator, because someone, the, the facilitator had said, oh, you would be a good facilitator. You should look into it. And I, I love, I love learning. I love teaching what I need to learn. I love learning, you know, for the love of learning. And so I went through that again. And it turned out that my, my co-facilitator was my neighbor. Like she could walk to, uh, to my house. We were that close. We didn't know, but we had gone all the way to, to the, you know, to the church location for the, for the sessions. And it was so funny how, how that happened. But anyway, so we went through that for six weeks and that was great. And then a third time I had gone through it as a, um, as a facilitator of the uh, staff, which is predominantly white, um, this particular church. So that was an interesting process. So out of those three iterations, I learned so much about, you know, what it takes to, you know, um, to, to just acknowledge where we are and to, um, you know, not judge. And then also to, to, to just know that we're, everyone's, everyone's suffering really when it comes to racial um Mm. situations racial you know concerns um so after i did that then um then i had gone to a four-day training in west virginia through my work my full-time job at starfire and it was called social role valorization i don't know if you've ever heard of that term i don't think so Okay, well, Dr. Wolf Wolfensberger coined that term after, in our field of developmental disabilities, after the term normalization was overused, which was initially meant to help people exit the institutions, you know, because there was a big phase in, in this country's history where the institutions were closed. Mm-hmm. But then they had people move into community based homes right. and to have normalization. Well, that got overused and then it became many institutions really in each person's house basically Mm -hmm. so then he said oh I need to change this and so he developed this uh concept of social role valorization which basically means uh the better uh if you have a role in your life the better your life is you know okay social role theory okay so what you were kind of when you were talking about starfire that's that's what it makes me think of but so connecting people with those roles versus you have this disability or this mental exactly. health issue or whatever. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. It's, yep. It's the role that brings to life, the person, like you said, the person mm-hmm. is, is comes to life from that. So when I had gone through that training for four days, it was an intensive, it's a full day, uh, eight to four for four days in West Virginia. Um, they talked a lot about the devaluation of people uh, and, and particularly people with disabilities. But then I, could not help but see the the stark parallel between people with disabilities being devalued and African Americans in this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really know what to do with that because that wasn't that's not really our focus at my job, you know. But I just kept it, and I thought maybe I'll write about it. So I thought about writing in the uh, SRV, which is short for Social Role Valorization, in their journal. But then, like after so many months, they actually have they actually stopped doing those journals they they canceled you know the journals so I said oh my goodness what am I going to do so um anyway then I had mentioned it to my colleague Tim Vogt um and he knew of someone who also is a writer who wanted to write about issues that related to some of the same things and so that's when I had met uh Frida Apum 
he introduced us. And from there, she she was actually interested in writing about um, about the devaluation of, of Black Americans. Now, before that, there was a string exercise that was created by Tim Vogt and another young lady um, that looked at the devaluation of people with disabilities. Uh, and it was an embodiment type of project where you had to like physically, you know, go through different stages and read scripts. And um, you, you know, it's just a physical manifest, like you're, you're put on, uh, there are ropes that are loosely put on you and you're, and you're moved to an um, institution setting and the mm-hmm. parents have to experience what it's like to talk to the doctor that says, this is, this is your child's fate, you know? And so to sit with that sadness was something that really stuck with me. And I had gone through that particular string exercise a number of times too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had gone through a lot of other SRV trainings, shorter in nature, not the four day. So that brought me to, like I said, when I met uh, Frida, we decided to write together. We didn't know what we were going to write about, but we liked the model of making it into an embodiment process uh, with scripts and with narration. Um, and so we came up with the Black American, um, the Black American Tree Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that looks at what happened to the Black American from pre-colonial Africa to present day in the form of scripts. Uh, we have 10 different vignettes with um, three scripts per vignette and it's done, it's led through narration. So anyone that goes through the, pro- the project and it is iterative in nature. So we, we design new things about it every time we iterate. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's always a Black American focused person. There's always a Black American family member who's impacted by um, what happened to the Black American focused person. And there's an institutional force that subjugates the, the Black American focused person. And so it, it's pretty heavy. It's, it's, you know, we don't, nothing is celebratory in the project. We don't talk about a single uh anything celebratory. So we're not talking about, and I have a dream speech by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're mm-hmm. not talking about, you know, the Million Man March or any any achievements around, around Black Americans. Mm-hmm. But what we wanted to do was try to concentrate all of the things because all of the things that have impacted uh, Black Americans so that people could experience it if they have not had an experience uh, before. Because some people... Uh, are being educated by this process, but then some people are being affirmed um, by the fact that this is what I've known my whole life. And, mm-hmm. and now it's in this setting where other people can also experience it. And then after the project, we, we don't leave people there, even though it's a lot of truth that's right there. We, we also carry the person through um, to a courageous community conversation Mm-hmm. Um, that we have with the people that are participating in that in that project. Um, and, and so we try to hold the space, hear from people, get a reflection from the from what they've experienced, and um, also have dialogue. We, we try to have that hold that space so that it's a brave space for people to dialogue. We have learned through the through the iterations. Now mind you, we've done this. <laughs> we did it in February of 2020 in person at the National uh, Freedom Center the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. Mm. We had an awesome opportunity to do it there in February. In March, we had planned to do it through Invest in Neighborhoods at their, uh, at their uh, summit. They have, a, um, you know, they have a, a summit, a neighborhood summit every uh, year. But then that was the same weekend that COVID hit and everything was shut down. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, but what we were able to do was move it onto an online platform through our uh, some help from our friends in Toronto, Canada, through the some Toronto Summer Institute that I had been going through through my work at Starfire for many mm-hmm. years. And they they wanted someone to help uh, do some online work as well because they were just learning about how to put things online as well. Mm-hmm. We were like, let's learn together, and and we've been holding it online ever since. Mm. So yeah. is it um, just let's uh, I want to make sure that uh, that I get a clear picture of what it's like. So if yeah. it were in person, I would. Is it a like a group of people is like 10 to 12 people or they're yeah. mixed races? I would think I, I think I would probably fall in the need to be educated category. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Um, right. Well, and there's other, I mean, like even people from all backgrounds learn something new in that space because Mm -hmm. that's such an embodied space that is very unique. I mean, most of the things that people have experienced when it comes to understanding race um, and the, 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 um, the issues of racism has been either reading a book, watching a, a movie you know, it's not been an embodied experience. You know, Mm -hmm. there are some new things that are out there now that I'm hearing of like virtual reality where you put on this virtual mask and you're you're like in this work setting as Mm -hmm. as an African-American or, you know, but that is still different. So we keep it low tech. Um, So you can, we have 30 different roles. Um, So, you know, we can have up to 30 people. We can also have at least 15 people Mm -hmm. and maybe they have, they read two scripts, different types mm-hmm. of scripts throughout the whole project. Uh, we also have a guest narrator who, um, if we're hosting it at a location, we would like someone from that location to be a guest narrator as well mm-hmm. as the, someone else be a main host of the project. And that's worked out really well. Um, so yeah, that's how we would operate okay. that. And it usually runs about three hours in total when you mm-hmm. factor in the project itself, which is 90 minutes. Plus now we've added an hour for the Courageous Community Conversation. Mm-hmm. We've ex- extended that a little longer. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes it's split up between two different days. I mean, we don't want it to be too far apart, like the project mm-hmm. and the conversations. Maybe right. a week apart the most. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I can imagine um, having gone through some training over the last four or five years, how that's, you have to have that space to process. Exactly. You and we, mm-hmm. yeah. We want people to have that space while they're in that process in that project because we we've learned a lot about the feedback even when we were going for other grants and things you know because it is a truth you know we we were listed as a truth pillar within the truth racial healing and transformation model um, that Kellogg Foundation I believe they're the ones that have put that out there um, and we were noted as a truth pillar through all in Cincinnati coalition here mm-hmm. so we, we we give the truth on it you know but we had to we had to realize we had to learn about how to beef up the um, the courageous conversation mm-hmm. and, and the healing because we also even we want to create a healing environment for people too, because if some, imagine if you're an African-American going through this process, you, you already know what it's like. <laughs> so now it's on, now it's in front of you and, and, and now it's in mixed company, so to speak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so we had some interesting feedback there because one thing we would like to do is have it in front of a predominantly African-American uh, audience, which we have not done yet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even like whether it's a family reunion or an organization that um, supports and serves people, we're open to that. Um, we also want to have this for organizations and institutions. Like we're now talking with um, uh, for-profit organizations um, to, you know, that represents the institutional force and, you know, and being able to, um, you know, host the um, project there. And then we've learned um, to also add something on the front end to kind of give people handles before they go into the Mm -hmm. process. Yes. So we Mm -hmm. wanted, we want to do a cohort model, which we've been piloting through uh, the University of Cincinnati right now, uh, through Dr. Amber Kelly's community psychology class, uh, which has been great. Uh, she's, yeah, that's an awesome thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> so she, she's allowed us to, um, you know, have a, like m- multiple sessions. So we have a presentation ahead of time. Where we kind of give you handles around what to expect. Also, we talk about things like racial uh, dialogue, um, you know, racial group di- dynamics, you know, mm-hmm. like so that people know when they get into these conversations, they don't have to be silent or someone else doesn't have to feel like they have to speak Mm -hmm. for everybody. You know, those kind of dynamics that happen in in Mm -hmm. conversations that we've seen happen through the iterations. Um, Right. mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I've seen that with the, the, the work that, um, the training that I've been through, it's especially for folks like me who, um, maybe some of this is new. I'm not, that's the collective. We, uh, some of us, uh, you know, I was thinking earlier today about how it's, African-American History Month. And I think um, with uh, Dr. Falami Prescott-Adams, I think you uh, listened to that episode. I listened, loved it. (laughs) Falami's gold. She's amazing. Um, And she led some of that work that I participated in. Um, Man, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, right? It's, and it's hard to be the one to be brave and to say the things and to risk you know, sticking your foot in your mouth or whatever, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. on our way to learn. Anyway, but I was thinking earlier about African-American history month. And I remember, I think I even said this to Flami is like, yeah, that was, that was for that other group of folks in high school. That wasn't for me. And now I feel so cheated. Right. I remember you said that. Yeah. yeah, So now I have to like, now I got to go out and educate all myself on all these wonderful poets and scholars and advocates and things like that, that somebody decided was not for me. That's the thing that we're hearing a lot of, like when people hear that story, the, the pro- they go through the project and then some of their reactions are things like that. Like they feel like, you know, all those, uh, the sadness and the, and the ups, you know, all the negative feelings, but then also the fact that they feel like cheated you know, out of a, of an education, a full mm-hmm. picture of an education. I mean, right. I'm reading right now, black, the black count. And it's really fascinating, you know, about the count of Miss Monte Cristo's father, <laughs> the one, the one that wrote the count of Monte Cristo, his is a story about his father, mm-hmm. um, uh, Alexander Dumas, but um, yeah, it's just interesting. And, and my thing is, wherever you are led to go, because people have asked, um, like, what should I do, you know, after Mm -hmm. this information? And one of the things that we don't put into our project is, okay, here's a to-do list of the five Mm -hmm. things that you need to do. Here are the five books you should read. (laughs) Exactly. And there's, because there's so many. and, and, And my thing is, and there's so many different ways also. It's not even only reading, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's also maybe placing your body in spaces 
physically putting your body in spaces mm-hmm. where you normally would never think to do mm-hmm. based on something that you're truly interested in. So if it's, if it's dance or if it's something else, whatever the interest is, now you have this other layer of saying, well, mm-hmm. maybe there's an African-American, you know, um, choreographer, or mm-hmm. maybe there's, you know, and then you just, you be authentic. That's, that's the biggest word I would, mm-hmm. I would give people because it's highly personal. And, and, and if it's not authentic, that also, you know, comes through on all of our sides, you, right. know, you know, from all directions. So I think that's important, but that's one of the biggest things that I've been doing. And I really love being a part of the Black American Tree Project and, and having it, you know, really blossom. Um, we're looking at, like I said, continuing to do it this year. Um, it, it was a professional development project for both Frida and myself. So it wasn't our main things that we were doing, um, but we're really excited to, to um, really do it uh, at different and different spaces mm-hmm. and see where it, where it takes and it may take the form of train the trainer like down the road you know because of that you know mm-hmm. but we're, we're open yeah so um you all have a website that folks can go to to learn more about the project and we've got that linked i have to ask you though how did you name it what what is the metaphor there is is there a metaphor i have to, i just have to ask <laughs> i'm so glad you did because that's that's one of the things that we talk about when we're orienting people to the project we talk about um okay so if um what we did was we had modeled this project after a few different uh other um experiences that we had personally experienced so um the kairos blanket exercise is something that um, is done in indigenous lands, you know, up north, you know, to help people understand what people from indigenous backgrounds have experienced in places like Canada, you know, <clears throat> and uh, and here <laughs> and, and here, North America, like the whole continent, mm-hmm. like the whole, yes. And then also, so we had the Kairos blanket exercise that we modeled after and we were inspired by. Then we also had the string exercise, which looked at what happened to people with disabilities and how their families were impacted. So we said, okay, if the blanket is to people that are indigenous and the string, you know, in the string exercise is, mm-hmm. is, is connected to people with disabilities in some way, what is it about uh, the Black American experience? And at first we thought it was going to be the, the Black American string exercise. We, we actually thought mm-hmm. that, we actually named it that for a little bit. We tried it out and prototyped it at Starfire and then as well as with people from Design Impact that were there. And we realized um, this really wasn't working. So then we we had the tree on the floor taped, you know, very low tech because we want it replicatable. We want it, we want very low barriers to entry to being able to do this elsewhere. So we have masking tape in the form of a tree. And we thought, okay, well, the tree is the central image in this project. And it's because of many reasons. Number one, the tree is very central to African-American heritage and, uh, and history. Um, the tree gives life and the tree um, offers um, branches of lineage, you know, for people. Um, and the tree also has the other side of um, the, the trauma and sadness too, mm-hmm. from, from the standpoint of African-Americans. So what we wanted to do was to, you know, kind of rewrite what the meaning of the tree was and really recapture that from the, its original purpose. Oh, you just gave me goosebumps all over the place. Cause one, I mean, the image, you know, cause we were talking before you, I grew up in Florida, then moved to Georgia. So I'm 
yeah. Southern as I can possibly be, maybe without the really thick Southern accent, at least I, in my own, anyway. Um, but I can't drive through a Southern town. You know, when you drive through the Southern town, there's always like a roundabout, usually around the city hall, and there's always a tree there. There's That's a reason, true. there is a reason I know. why that tree is there. And when I saw the name of the project, that was the first, I don't know if that's the image. So I love the way um, that you describe reframing because the other thought, because we, yeah. we both talked, we talked a little bit about our, um, our spiritual backgrounds. That's the other image that came to me is, mm. um, you know, Jesus on the cross, right? That was a symbol of degradation and you're a criminal and that's, that's a symbol of shame and it was turned into something else. Right. So that, that's, wow, that's a, that's beautiful. Yeah. And we, we really want to reimagine it and, and really know that like the tree is lush and life-giving and, you know, even in the midst of all of this other, you know, all of the other things that can happen and what we know has happened historically. Mm -hmm. And that's coming out even more mm -hmm. in so many ways. So many cities are bringing that history to the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> and you know, the, ch the challenges, you know, like you said, what are the challenges and the rewards? So the challenges is being like you had mentioned earlier, not everyone sees what you see around like what, what we're trying to do around collective healing and, and getting truth out there mm -hmm. like that. So we, we only go where people want us to be. So mm -hmm. it works out, which works out really well, you know, in our, in our world. Um, and also, um, yeah, it, it's, it can be challenging um, because, <clears throat> you know, time is a factor too, like, cause the project does take a few hours to do. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just carving that out within the companies and things like that is a thing. And then uh, the rewards are just, to me, they're, they're, they're so deep and I can't even really articulate how rewarding it is to be able to, to, to do a project, to create it, to write it, and then to see it happening in, in different places. We're looking at possibly Maryland as well. We're talking to a, a group there. Mm -hmm. um, and so just to be able to know that it, it's something that can have far reaching impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Me. Yeah. I love that. And you're starting to get some recognition for that project. And it's, it's, it feels like, you know, it's getting, it's getting some momentum. And I love what you said about going where people, you know, they're, they're open to it. Right. And I, you know, I th certainly think there's things we can all do to help our neighbors be ready to receive, right? We don't, we don't always have to like wait, um, but people right. need to be ready to have this conversation. You know, there's so much pushback when you, you know, uh, over like critical race theory and no, you can't teach that in my school. And, you know, you're right. teaching folks that, you know, white people are bad and America is bad. And that, that is nothing there, there, there's no, there is no truth in that. Uh, so right. anyway, so I'm probably rambling a little bit there, but, um, yeah, I, I love that. And I, so you've answered all my questions. You talked about the future of the project. You talked about the experience, uh, before we kind of move on to close. All right. What is this book that I saw you post the other day? What is that all about? Oh, and yes. What, and do you ever sleep? I, I really don't know. <laughs> sleep is overrated. No, um, I, I need lots and lots of sleep. Uh, <laughs> no, the book is called Microshift, um, and it's uh, big, big, uh, mind, big mind mindset shifts. You know, um, you know, to making these small changes 
And so it, it's a combination of um, different authors that have come together. Um, Kendra Ramirez is a dear friend of mine and um, I, we have such a wonderful way that we met. It was, it was just awesome. It was a God thing for sure. Um, I was over, at, our family had been over at their farm, uh, their lake in Indiana, their lake house. And, and um, because, because of her husband's um, aunt, who, who's, um, who's, who's, okay, so the aunt is the grandmother of a child that goes to school with my son. <laughs> and so she, she would just invite us over. So we would say, okay, sure, we get the kids together. And then one day Kendra and, and was there with her husband and we got to talking and come to find out Kendra is also a coach and I'm also a, a coach as well. Um, and so we do growth mindset work together. And um, so, so she, you mean like a life coach? I do. Oh, I do okay. mean, not soccer coach, not basketball coach. <laughs> no, gotcha. not, I'm glad you clarify that. Although I have done that in the past for my kids when they needed coaches for soccer, uh, at least in track. But no, in this case, it is it is a personal, I do growth mindset and, and personal foundations coaching. And um, so I had done a, a conference. I had spoken at her conference after we had met at the, at the house over there, you know, purely recreational. Then she said, oh, you know, I do um, these reset conferences, you know, and I would love to have you come out and, and speak. So I did that in 2020, in October of 2020, during the pandemic in a studio. And it was like, I think it was Facebook live streamed. Mm. Um, <laughs> so that was interesting. And, um, and then, so then she came up with this book uh, project that she wanted to do, and she invited me to be a part of that. And so there are six of us that are part of this book, and we're just real excited that we get to, to launch this book together. I love doing this uh, in a team environment, personally. I have written a book on my own, a couple of books, and, um, but I do enjoy uh, doing this collaboratively. So it's releasing on the 18th of this month, and we, we will be able to provide the link for um, the Amazon um, uh, purchase. It's a digital uh, download for $1.99. And what will That's happen- That's a bargain. On, that is a bargain. The digital download is a bargain. And we, when everyone purchases it on the 18th, it'll help move it into what's called the Amazon bestseller status, which is why we're waiting for the 18th to release the link. Uh, so that's exciting. And then a week after that, the um, paperback will be available. Awesome. So it, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And in the, in the book, I just share my reset story. I, I took, take people through a coaching process called release, allow, attract, and act, which is one thing I've used for myself through the years. And I share my own personal story of part of what I mentioned at the top of this mm -hmm. uh, interview, you know, that brought me from where I was to where I am today. And I'm really mm -hmm. grateful. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm grateful that uh, we met, even if it's virtual, maybe we'll meet in person one day. I would love that. And I'm glad we met too. I'm, you're amazing. And I appreciate how you, you know, how you have people come out and listen and, and talk together, you know, about different things that are coming up for them. And you just have this, this, like, I feel like, I feel like you're like a best friend too, because I feel like normally I'm not talking. So so like fluidly and, you know, just casually. And so you brought that out. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think it's all you actually. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, 
uh, end with the question I ask all of my guests, which is when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? Wow. Okay. So I think about how collective societies operate. And I see a future where people are connected, you know, just because they have similar things that are interesting, interesting to them, you know, and that they are building each other up. They are supporting one another. They are borrowing sugar and eggs, <laughs> for, you know, from our neighbor, you know, we're, we're borrowing these kinds of things from each other. That's the kind of future I see. Mm -hmm. I see front porch experiences versus, you know, garage experiences where you just pull into your garage and never see your neighbor. Mm. Um, I, I just see being able to um, have intergenerational connections, intercultural connections um, that is just un, uninhibited, you know, like that's not, that's not, uh, it's not hampered by anything that that the society currently has. So it's, it's, we, we are just moving together, moving mm -hmm. forward together and, and we're appreciating each other for our values and our uh, gifts that we already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. So, um, and thank you for being on this episode today. I really so appreciate it before I let yeah. you go. Do you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you, learn more about the book or more about um, the, the Black American Tree Project, any, yes, all the things, <laughs> all the things, all the things. Well, yes. Okay. So to reach out to me, you can just go to danietta.com, www.danietta.com. That's D-A-N-Y-E-T-T-A.com. And um, that's the best way to reach out to me. Um, the Black American Tree Project does have a website as well. And it's the Black American Tree Project.org. So it's that full name um, all together. And um, yeah, and then Starfire is uh, Starfire Sensi uh, with a Y. So that's S T A R F I R E C I N C Y.org. And that's how you can learn a little bit more about Starfire as well. Great. Well, we, I will put links to all of uh, Danietta's uh, information in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate it. Awesome. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I hope you were inspired by what you heard. I have a big announcement for you. I have a new free mini course that is available that I have designed for community coalition and nonprofit leaders. I've found that something that gets community leaders over their fear of evaluation or maybe it helps them make it more of a priority anyway, is to think about how they can use their data to reach their audience. So in this free mini course, I talk about infographics and success stories, and uh, even throw in an activity that you can do with your community group. So uh, check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can go on over and grab that mini course. And before I let you go, just want to remind you that it's so helpful if you would 
like and share, and maybe even take that extra second to write a review about the podcast. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.